0: Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Frontier of Infinity, from whence we've come, part two. We've reached another milestone and come to the end of season two. With the conclusion of Project Gemini, the final phase of the moon race is upon us, as Apollo and Soyuz will face off in the coming years to be the first to place a human being on the moon. But before we move forward, just like we did at the end of season one, We'll quickly review everything which was covered in this previous season. We began right after the ends of Projects Mercury and Vostok, the first crewed spaceflight programs undertaken by the United States and Soviet Union, respectively. By that point in the space race, the Soviets held a comfortable lead, having outperformed the Americans at nearly every turn. Mercury and Vostok had seen both global superpowers take their first steps beyond the atmosphere and had delivered terrific victories to both nations. But it was shortly after the dual end of these programs that a fresh tragedy struck the United States. Their president and NASA's chief advocate, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, during a campaign trip. The president was shot as his motorcade moved through a wide plaza, and his loss dealt a terrible blow to NASA. Uncertainty gripped the administration as it became unclear whether or not their future plans would ever come to fruition. But the NASA administrators stayed their course and were pleased to find that Kennedy's replacement, Lyndon Baines Johnson, was largely on the same page regarding space as Kennedy had been. Even so, there was some growing sentiment among the American public that the space program was a waste of money and resources, Why throw away so much money on space projects, which to the common citizen looked like little more than a key to bragging rights over the Soviets when there were so many dire issues on the ground that needed to be addressed? NASA no longer enjoyed the same enthusiastic support that it once did. But these setbacks were not about to end NASA's struggles in the space race. They had a new program coming online which would help them build out the skills necessary to pull off a proper moon landing. It was called Gemini, and it would mark a massive leap forward for American spacecraft design. The new Gemini capsule looked superficially like an enlarged version of the Mercury, but it was a superior spacecraft in every way. It would carry two astronauts instead of one, would have a much longer mission-duration ceiling, and its maneuvering capabilities would be vastly improved over Mercury. It would also have a new launch vehicle. Mercury's Atlas rocket was left behind for the Titan II, a rocket initially designed to carry nuclear warheads into space, but which could be modified to carry humans instead. At the same time as NASA was working on Gemini, the Soviets were continuing to hone their own spacecraft. They had nothing like Gemini in the works, but once it became clear that the Americans were going to attempt to launch multiple astronauts at once, Sergei Kurlyov and his design team at OKB-1 realized that they would need to very quickly cobble together a spacecraft capable of pulling off the same, hopefully before the Americans could get their own flying. What came as a result was the Voshod, essentially an enlarged version of the Vostok, which would carry three passengers and was exceptionally dangerous to fly. The cosmonauts wore no pressure suits, as they were crammed shoulder to shoulder inside with no room for protective gear. There was no ejection system either, meaning that any issues on launch or reentry would likely prove fatal. It was a hackneyed solution to a big problem thrown together last minute, but miraculously, the Voskhod flew before the Gemini could, and the Soviets notched another pair of firsts for their trophy case. They were the first to orbit three people at once, and were the first to send a civilian scientist into space. Incredibly, no one died on the inaugural Voskhod flight, but the Soviets were not done quite yet. A second Voshod was launched in March of 1965, with only two cosmonauts on board. However, their mission this time around would involve a new orbital maneuver far more complex and dangerous than any pulled off before. Alexei Leonov would attempt the first-ever spacewalk. A specialized airlock had been cooked up for the Voshod, as well as a new spacesuit. Leonov exited the capsule and floated about in space for about 10 minutes before it was time to return. However, his suit had swelled in the vacuum outside and refused to fit back inside the airlock. This was a dire situation, as Leonov's supplies were beginning to run low, but the cosmonaut remained calm despite incredible physical exertion, and he slowly bled away some of the air out of his suit so that it would shrink down small enough to fit back through the airlock. He made it back inside, but then additional problems on re-entry saw the capsule crash off-course in the Siberian wilderness. The two cosmonauts spent several days in their capsule fighting to survive against the elements and the wildlife until a group of rescuers found them and cleared a spot for a helicopter to land. Both Leonov and his fellow, Beliaev, survived, but their mission marked the end of manned Voshod flights. The vehicle would continue to be used for testing, but the Soviets had lost their appetite for sending humans aloft with it. Meanwhile, the Americans were charging ahead with Gemini. On March 23, 1965, the first manned Gemini was launched, with Gus Grissom and John Young aboard. They proved that the Gemini was a worthy spacecraft, and even enjoyed a sandwich while in orbit, which was most definitely not sanctioned by NASA. The mission was a success and laid the groundwork for the next 11 missions which would make up the Gemini program. Eager to match the Soviet spacewalk, NASA prepared to carry out its own. With a new EVA suit ready to go, they selected Ed White to be their first stroller of the heavens. Gemini Titan IV lifted off on June 3, 1965, and Ed White pulled off the first American spacewalk. The whole mission lasted for over four days, also proving that longer flights could be pulled off, a necessary skill for the impending Project Apollo. One of the great goals for Gemini was to master the art of orbital rendezvous. This would be a necessary aspect of the Apollo plan, yet it had never been pulled off by either superpower. It was hoped that the Gemini's vastly improved maneuverability would allow for the stunt to be completed, but there was no guarantee. Charles Conrad and Gordon Cooper on Gemini Titan 5 would both attempt to rendezvous with a specially designed target vessel called an Agena and additionally attempt to pull off an 8-day mission, which would be roughly equivalent to the shortest possible lunar landing mission duration. The motto for the flight was 8 days or bust, much to NASA's chagrin, as they feared that a duration any shorter than that would spawn cheeky headlines declaring the mission a bust. But regardless it went forward. Unfortunately, some problems with the fuel cells on the spacecraft limited their rendezvous experiments. But even so, the flight granted NASA fresh confidence that a rendezvous was possible, and much was learned about how to schedule operations in space for the greatest effectiveness. The mission lasted a full 7 days, 22 hours, and 55 minutes. But it was surely no bust. Come October of that same year, Gemini Titan 6 was ready to go with Wally Schirra and Tom Stafford on board. But when the target vessel they were supposed to rendezvous with disintegrated on ascent, a problem arose. The mission as planned had to be scrapped, but maybe it could still be salvaged. Why rendezvous with a target when you could rendezvous with another Gemini? The plan was ambitious, calling for the twin launches of Gemini 6 and 7 just hours apart, 7 would launch first, then 6 would be launched from the same pad later. The two would be in orbit simultaneously and then rendezvous with each other. Gemini 7 would even stay in orbit for two weeks, testing new frontiers for mission duration. However, Gemini 6 did not launch properly on the first attempt, settling back onto the launch pad. The astronauts on board did not eject, taking a risk that the rocket could detonate, but no such thing occurred. And the rocket was launched successfully later on. Against the odds, Gemini 6 and 7 were able to successfully rendezvous and fly in close formation for hours. This was a massive milestone for NASA. The first orbital rendezvous had been successfully completed. And now, work on docking could begin. The job of successfully docking would fall to Neil Armstrong and Dave Scott on Gemini 8. Rather than dock with another Gemini, they would make use of the Agena docking target, which had been designed for the program. The docking went very well. Gemini 8 managed to connect itself to the Agena without issue. But once the two spacecraft were joined, a malfunction saw the mated spacecraft begin to spin out of control. Thinking there was a problem with the Agena, Armstrong and Scott decoupled from it. But the issue was on the Gemini increasing the rate of spin as the mass of the spacecraft had been reduced. This was a dire situation, with the rate of rotation rising as high as one revolution per second, pushing both astronauts to the brink of unconsciousness. However, both of them managed to stay cool and switched off the orbital control thrusters before they activated the re-entry thrusters instead, which slowed the roll and still managed to bring both astronauts back home safely. It was a harrowing incident, but one that had seen Armstrong and Scott distinguish themselves under pressure. While Gemini was charging ahead in the U.S., things were not going well for the Soviet space program. In early 1965, Sergei Kurlyov was admitted to the hospital for a fairly routine abdominal surgery. But complications in the procedure, compounded by the many health problems Kurlyov had long struggled against, saw it turn fatal. The chief designer of the Soviet Union's rocket program had been laid low, in part by injuries which had been inflicted by the state during his time in the gulag system as a political prisoner. The effects on the Soviet space program were profound. Vasily Mishin, one of Kurlyov's trusted colleagues, rose to replace him and took on the title of chief designer. But Mishin, despite his brilliance for engineering, was not the same savvy politician Kurlyov had been. He had trouble getting authorization for the resources he needed, and could not schmooze the Soviet elites as successfully as his predecessor. Development in the Soviet space program slowed down. Work continued on the N-1 Soyuz moon plan, and a number of uncrewed missions were launched. But overall, the Soviets began to fall far behind the Americans, as it became evident that Soviet chances for winning the space race were steadily withering away. NASA, however, was eager to keep striving forward. Gemini 9 would see the docking exercise repeated by Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan. The rendezvous with the Agena target was a complete success, but a malfunction with the fairing on the Agena meant that docking could not happen. The fairing did not jettison the way it was supposed to and remained clinging to the target like a pair of gaping jaws, earning it the nickname The Angry Alligator. The other major objective for the mission was to get in some more EVA experience, and the task fell to Gene Cernan. He departed the capsule and attempted to move aft to test a new maneuvering unit which had been designed for EVA, but the exertion of the spacewalk quickly exhausted him to the point where he was in real danger. Aborting the EVA, Cernan made it back inside the capsule, and both astronauts returned to Earth. Much more planning and design work would have to go into figuring out how to carry out an EVA safely. Gemini 10 was a far sight better than Gemini 9. John Young and Michael Collins set a new altitude record, successfully docked with their target vessel, and Collins carried out an EVA that went much better than Cernan's, even though there were still issues to work out. At this point, however, there were only two more missions left in the Gemini program, placing pressure on NASA to test the last few skills they wanted to master before setting in on Apollo. Mastering EVA was one of those skills. Gemini 11 failed to crack the spacewalk enigma. But it did set yet another altitude record, as Pete Conrad and Richard Gordon used their Agena target to push their Gemini as high as 853 miles or 1,373 kilometers, higher than any humans had ever flown before. They got in a good deal of rendezvous and docking practice, increasing NASA's confidence in the maneuver. But still, a fully successful EVA eluded the program. Gemini 12 finally delivered the answers NASA had been looking for. Buzz Aldrin and James Lovell managed to pull off a number of successful spacewalks by carefully planning and taking regular breaks, additionally making use of the many hand and footholds which had been added all over the spacecraft to aid in the astronauts' motility. EVA had been mastered, and the road to Apollo had been thoroughly paved. That's where Season 2 leaves off. In Season 3, we'll dive into the double-moon programs undertaken by the Soviets and the Americans as the final phase of the space race kicks off. I'll see all of you there. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and leave it a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars.